I ask you to continue to pray for Bishop Goldsberry. I was over there to visit him just a little bit ago. He had a little episode this morning about 4 a.m. in the morning. He got up and kind of took a little spill and, uh, and uh, bruised his shoulder up a little bit, but he is, he is fine at this point in time. Uh, prayed with him, and uh, uh, he, he'll be fine. Uh, just got a little disoriented and fell back against the bed and so forth. But uh, the Lord is with him, and so just continue to pray for him that the Lord will continue to give him strength, give Sister Goldsberry the strength while she takes care of him. Amen. I invite your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you'll give me just a few minutes this morning, I think it would only be fitting that we preach for a little while about the risen Christ, faith's reality. The risen Christ, faith's reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 22, we will read in your hearing before we pray and then are seated. Amen. Paul writes, if you're not there, you can see it on the screen behind me or uh, whichever direction you happen to be looking. If you got your back to me, you can see it back there. And uh, Paul writes, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Aren't you glad he rose? Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is, everybody say that, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all, everybody say all, all shall be made alive. Let us pray together. Again, Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for this privilege and opportunity that we've been granted to gather together here to worship you and to exalt and magnify your name. We ask you today, as we come to this portion of the service, the ministry of your word, that you would anoint this your servant and vessel that we might speak today as the oracle of God, that we might minister today from your throne room in your heart. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to be transparent, anoint these words, this mind, and these lips, anoint each of us to receive, and we'll thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. 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 Look at someone close by and smile at them real big. And you can be seated. Show them your pearly whites. If the resurrection is not historical fact, then the power of death remains unbroken. And with it, the effects of sin and the significance of Christ's death remains uncertified, and accordingly, believers are yet in their sins, precisely where they were before they heard of Jesus' name. As a historical fact, It has been his resurrection which has enabled men to believe in his official exaltation over humanity. You see, without the resurrection, all that Jesus incurred and suffered to to and through Calvary would be meaningless. Amen. It is not a mere question of the moral influence of his character, his example, and his teaching. It is that their present surrender to Him as Lord and Savior, as their Redeemer, has been promoted by this very belief that He rose from the dead. And we cannot be justified without it. Amen? Now, indeed, those who deny His resurrection 
consistently deny as a rule his divinity and his redemptive work in any sense that the Apostle Paul would have acknowledged it. Amen. You see, in the whole story of Jesus Christ, the most important event is the resurrection. Christian faith depends on His resurrection. For without His resurrection, we really don't have anything to stand on. Amen. It is encouraging to know that it is explicitly given by all four gospel accounts is the record of Jesus' death, burial, and His resurrection. Amen. It is also encouraging to know that he was also seen, one, as born out of due season by the Apostle Paul. Amen. The names of those who saw him after his triumph over death, over death are recorded in the Word of God. And it may be said that the historical evidence for the resurrection is stronger than for any other miracle anywhere narrated throughout Scripture. And as Paul so profoundly stated, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching in vain and your faith is also in vain. Amen? There was a gentleman by the name of Frank Morrison. He was a well-educated British lawyer. In fact, his thinking was shaped by the German critics, uh, Oxford professor Matthew Arnold and biologist Dr. Thomas Huxley all of whom openly denied even the possibility of miracles. He was influenced by these individuals. Now Morrison, in an effort to disprove the Christian belief that Jesus was miraculously raised from the dead, set out to write a book, as you might imagine. Now little did he realize and suspect that the book he ended up writing would be so radically different from the book that he had planned on writing. The book was titled, Who Moved the Stone? Now it turned out, by, by, it turned out to be a defense. What started out to be a repudiation and a denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ ended up being a book recording the defense and the absolute of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his own words, he writes, and I quote, he discovered one day that not only could he no longer write the book as he had once conceived it, but that he would not if he could. End of quote. And this change of heart happened, and I quote again, not suddenly as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the way, by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. End of quote. We cannot deny or set aside the facts Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we can bask in His presence and in His glory and in His fellowship today because He rose from the grave victorious. Step back, me and step, step back with me in time, if you will, for just a moment and imagine what must have been going on in John's mind and what it must have sounded like to hear Jesus say as they watched and peered there as he hung on the cross and he cried out, It is finished. It's all over. Jesus' bloody body finally sagged on the cross, finally still and finally quiet as John observed and those who were there with him. The one who has snatched the official son 
back from the jaws of death and called Lazarus out of the tomb. The resurrection and the life now hung limp and lifeless, needing to be placed in a tomb himself. Can you imagine with me for a moment what must have been going on through the mind of John and those intercircle close followers of his as they watched? They seen him raise Lazarus from the tomb. They watched as he brought those back from the jaws of death. And now he hangs lifeless on the cross. No doubt John remembered these words as they ran through his mind as he's thinking back, beholding this scene. Oh, he remembered the words of Jesus, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Then John recalled these words, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. He remembered the words of Jesus when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. All of these things running through John's mind as he's observing. He remembered Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Oh, I laid down my life for the sheep that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. John probably wondering, okay, just when? Just any minute. You know, just any moment now, you can take it up again. He, he remembered Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil and roller coaster John was going through as he observed and watched? He remembered the words that Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Oh, yeah. Then he remembered Jesus saying, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world as he hung lifeless on the cross. Now, with John's mind reeling, he no doubt wondered what, what this, what was this just a dream? What does it all mean? Am I, somebody going to pinch me here in a minute or slap me and wake me up from this horrifying dream? The healings, the signs, the profound teaching. How could it all end this way? How's joy and peace possible now? The one who said he would bring peace is no longer alive. He's hanging there. The one who uttered all of these promises and words is now dead. And as John watched in horror, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus' battered body off the cross, confusion and despair flooded John's soul. Oh yes, it is finished. However, as John and the others would soon see, it was far from over. It might have been finished for the moment and as far as redemption was concerned and the judgment paid, but oh, it was far from being over. You see, as the centuries have passed, there have been those who have said Jesus couldn't have possibly been dead. Oh, they advocate he must have been unconscious or in a coma and later came to in the tomb. Oh, I've talked to folks that believe this stuff. 
However, the separation of the blood and water in his body says it all, made it medically impossible for him to just have passed out or been in a coma there hanging on the cross. Even the soldiers knew that he was dead. Once they pierced his side, it found it unnecessary to break the bones in his legs because they knew he had already expired and was deceased. Amen. More certainly than that, though, though his friends knew, oh, the Bible says after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission so he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and of aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and, and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, fortunately, today in today's world, we leave the care of our dearly departed loved ones into the hands of the undertaker. And grateful for the clean and quiet viewing rooms and for the flowers and the funeral dignity and all that goes along with that process and that procedure. However, in Jesus' day, family and friends were responsible for the preparation of the body for burial. The custom of the Jews was to wrap the entire body in strips of cloth, sprinkling a mixture of pulverized myrrh and aloe between the layers to glue them together and stifle the smell of death's decay. Joseph and Nicodemus were friends of Jesus, and with that being said, had there been the faintest sign of pulse or life in Jesus' limb, don't you think they would have made every effort to resuscitate him? course they would have and he had become their world they had given them all that they knew and were associated with to follow him instead they prepared him for burial according to the Jewish custom now much to the surprise and horror of those looking on Jesus's body was laid to rest in a tomb the Bible says in John 19 41 and 42 now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation for the tomb was nearby. Now let me say this just for the sake of clarification and a little more insight. In case you don't happen to know, the Jewish day of preparation refers to the Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday and ran till sundown on Saturday. Now this makeshift mortuary crew, if you would, had only a short time in which to get it accomplished because it was unlawful for anyone dead not to be buried before the sunset on the Sabbath. Just a little food for thought. So at the same time, Joseph of Arimathea volunteered his own tomb, and it was a newly hewn cave of rock. However, I must point this out to you, that even in death, Jesus' prisoner status continued on. Here's what I mean by that. In addition to the huge stone that sealed the tomb, Pilate gave in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders and ordered a guard to keep watch over the tomb. Oh, and the chief priests and the Pharisees even set a seal on the stone, 
which consisted of a cord because they were afraid someone would come and take the body of Jesus and remove it and claim that he has resurrected because Jesus told them one day, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there was, they were, did not intend to let any kind of trickery take place in this event. So they had this thing sealed. A cord stretched across the stone and fastened at each end by seeding wax or clay. Anyone who broke the seal, what, which was official, would incur the wrath of the Roman government. Amen. people of that day who loved Jesus, who had abandoned everything to follow him, the darkness of that first resurrection morning three days later must have seen the metaphor for their lives. What have we done? What has happened? Somebody slap me and wake me up from this horrific dream. We left family, friends, businesses, Everything that we once knew in our life to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. And now he lies dead in this tomb. The Bible says the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now things are starting to get interesting. You see, according to Mark and Luke's account, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and Salome, along with a few other unnamed women, accompanied Mary Magdalene that morning in the wee hours of the morning after the Sabbath. Having waited through what was surely an interminable, unending Sabbath day, if you will, the women crept through the quiet pre-dawn darkness toward the tomb. No doubt tears streaming down their faces, they recall the events of that week, the past three days, and Wondering, could have anything been done? Could someone have stopped this? And in the quiet pre-dawn darkness toward the tomb, carrying the spices with which they had hoped to anoint the body. No doubt their nerves were already on edge. I mean, after all, they were in a cemetery. Just days after witnessing the most horrific death imaginable, they were no doubt on edge. And not only that, they witnessed an earthquake during the final hours of the crucifixion that also jolted their world. Amen? They're wondering what's going to happen next. And if that weren't enough, the sight they came upon must have shaken them to the core as they walked up to the tomb and seen that the stone had been removed. The cord had been broken. The stone had been rolled back. These women had watched Nicodemus and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea roll that stone into place. They knew that it couldn't just be moved by anyone. You see, they had heaved it onto its edge and maneuvered it onto an inclined groove, then wedged it into place with some wood or rock. And once Jesus' body had been prepared and it was laid inside the tomb, the wedge was removed and the stone rolled downhill into place. Historians say that it was not uncommon for such a stone to weigh about a ton. That's 2,000 pounds. Even Jeffrey, as buff as he is, can't lift 2,000 pounds. Amen. Who then could or would have moved this stone? Not the guards, 
they would have feared punishment. And the disciples couldn't have because of the presence of the guards. Mary Magdalene and the other women didn't know what had happened. And they were frantic. Can you imagine what was going through their heart? The Bible says, then she ran. She ran. She just absolutely took off and took out of the barreling run. And she ran to who you might suspect, Simon Peter. And to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken, oh my goodness, you've got to come. They have taken away the Lord. Now I put that in there. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Somebody stole him, Peter. John, you've got to listen to me. You watched as I watched and they put him in that tomb. And now he's not there. Though Mary didn't understand, it was resurrection morning. And the sun had finally risen on the most glorious day humanity would ever known. And that was Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and purchased redemption for all mankind. You see, Peter and John wasted no time running toward the tomb. You can imagine they were. They were on their way to check this thing out. They ran toward the light. In fact, the Bible says in John 20, verses 3 through 5, Peter therefore went in, or went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. They didn't walk. They didn't just sashay. They ran. We've got to check this out. And the other disciple outran Peter. John outran him. And came to the tomb first, and he's stooping down. He, he didn't go running in. He stooped down, and he kind of... That would have probably been my approach, for I just went barreling in there. He stooped down and he looked. He, he, he observed and he seen what was there. And, and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in, the Bible says. Whew. You see, John uses, I want you to notice the word saw there. Now, now I'm going to make a play on words here, perhaps it might seem, but this is important. John uses three different Greek words for it in the verses 3 through 9 for the word saw. Each marking a progression from physical to spiritual sight. Watch how this unfolds. Here in verse 5, the Greek word for saw is belipi, and it basically means to note with a strong emphasis on the function of the eye. We oftentimes see things and don't believe what we're seeing. Right? I was told a lot of times growing up, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. Now John peered into the cave and he noticed the linen wrappings, but their significance did not immediately hit him. It just, just did not register. He saw it, but it just did not sink in. The Bible says then that then Simon Peter came following him. And of course Peter, he just goes boom right into the pew or right into the tomb. He doesn't mess around. Well, we need to get some folks in the pew. Anyway, he, he just went flying right into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head. And, boy, I'd like to preach there for a while, but that's for another time. Not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, next came Simon Peter. Now, puffing up behind John, you know, shouldering past John into the tomb. You know, Peter, he was pretty impetuous, and he just... If John was standing in the doorway, he'd have just knocked him out of the way to go in. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and he beheld, there's that word beheld, saw again, what John had seen, but in a somewhat different way. Now, the Greek word this time, in this particular verse, is, 
It's sterile, which from which we get our word fear arise. Peter began to theorize. Aha, what could this mean? Y'all, any of y'all ever done that? Theorize about something? <laughs> See something, begin to theorize what it all meant, what's going on. Peter saw something he wasn't expecting, and it stopped him in his tracks. His eyes narrowed, his brow furled, he studied it and he pondered what it could mean. Now, here's some insight into what it was that so arrested Peter's attention. Why should the condition of the grave clothes excite Peter's amazement? Here's why. There is a strong hint that the soldiers, or the clothes rather, were not folded as if Jesus had unwound them and then deposited them in a neat pile on the shelf. Are you still with me? The word used to describe the napkin or the head cloth does not connotate a flat folded square like a table napkin, but a ball of cloth bearing the appearance of being rolled around an object that was no longer there. The wrappings were in position where the body had lain, and the head cloth was where the head had been, separated from the others by the distance from armpit to neck. Now, the shape of the body was still apparent in them, but the flesh and the bone had disappeared. He literally slipped out of the grave clothes and resurrected. If you had this image in mind that Jesus kind of stood up, he started unwrapping all this stuff. It's not the way it happened. Empty grave clothes, but their shape intact, like the shell of a locust still clinging to a tree or an open cocoon still dangling from a leaf. I would also add their tomb had not been opened to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. Transformed by the resurrection, he had passed through the grave clothes, leaving like, leaving like an outworn cocoonous certainty of the tomb for the vestments of glory. He was gone. Amen. That ought to make you real happy. It ought to make you real happy. As Peter was attempting to sort all of this out, John was beginning to get the picture. Here's what the Bible says that makes me believe that John began to perceive, and now it was more than just academic. The Bible said, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, he went in also. And he saw, and the Bible said, he believed. All of those words that he remembered as Jesus hung lifeless there on the cross began to fall into place. Have you all ever, something ever dawned on you? It's like a light bulb just went on in your mind. It's like, huh, why didn't I think of that before? John is there and he looked and he's seen the grave clothes as they were, and it said he saw. And believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now this time the word saw comes from the word edin in Greek means to perceive or to realize. In other words, it all fell into place. It clicked. It all began to come together. John stood next to Peter gazing at the odd sight and the light came on. He is risen. He's alive. 
Now, John may not have understood Jesus' resurrection from a scientific perspective as, you know, as, as foretold by Scripture. But what he saw, he believed. No, they did not move him. He has risen. Amen? On this resurrection Sunday morning, well, it's Sunday afternoon now, in case you're wondering, we need to take hope and assurance in the fact that over 2,000 years ago, our Lord and Savior resurrected from the tomb. Amen. As you stand and we close this morning, I will acknowledge that not all of us have been hardcore skeptics like this fellow by the name of Morrison. But some of us have needed to be convinced by hard, cold evidence. We were not there. We did not see him. We have what we know as the Bible, the Word of God, that has recorded all of the events that transpired, given us the names of those who were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Paul said above 500 brethren seen him, met him face to face. Paul said, I seen him on the road to Damascus come face to face with the crucified Christ as one born out of due season. He said, I don't know whether I was caught into the third heaven or what. He said, I can't explain exactly what transpired. But he said, I know, I know, I saw him. However, we must not stop at that juncture in our life. Jesus Christ's resurrection is a spiritual truth. All of the skeptics and all the agnostics in the world cannot change that fact. Oh, I've heard of debate for years over the reality of his resurrection. I have listened and read some of the comments of some of the sharpest minds in the world. Yet they will never change what I know to be a fact. Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus Christ's resurrection is spiritual truth, not impersonal data to be analyzed. And that's where folks get into trouble. It's not something to be filed away and kept at a distance. It is a living truth. A turning point in history that re reverberates through each and every age and through each and every believer. You see, it is meant to travel through our heads, into our hearts, and out into our lives. I live the way I live and know what I know and believe what I believe because I know and stand firmly in the truth of the resurrected Christ and know that He redeemed me and He has transformed my life so dramatically you would not know me if you knew me a long time ago. Paul stated it so well in his epistle to the Corinthians and I close with this. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he wraps up this chapter like this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
Be steadfast. Immovable. Don't let somebody rock you, move you off the rock of truth. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Christ has risen from the dead. Our labor is not in vain. As we worship for a moment today, I ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to refresh your heart and mind in the truth and reality that we serve a risen Savior. He's alive today, and He is among us and because of his resurrection, we have life and have it more abundantly. Because of his resurrection, we can say like Paul did, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It come out of the tomb with him. Well, Jesus Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Let's worship for a moment.